Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who calls us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Our God and Savior Jesus Christ has revealed himself, calling us to his glory and excellence, empowering us by his gospel with a new godly nature that escapes the prison of depravity, so that we will live God glorifying, virtuous lives. This morning we're going to see four elements of great significance in this passage. I'm going to go ahead and give them to you. They're short. Uh, Number one, I want you to see the power for godliness in this passage. The power for godliness. Second, I want you to see the pathway to godliness. Third, the promise of godliness. And fourth, the proof of godliness. Number one, the power for godliness. Peter says here, as you know, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. This word divine, as you might imagine, comes from the Greek term theos, which means God. Divine is theos, very similar and actually a derivative of the term Theos. So it really means of God. It's actually the adjectival form of Theos, so it really means of God. If you were to speak of something being divine, you would mean that it reflects the character of God. That's the idea. If it is divine, it is so because it is of God. So when Peter speaks of his divine power, he's speaking of a godly power. The term here, for power is dunameos from dunamis, which is the word from which we get our English word dynamite. So it makes sense, really stands to reason, that it would mean power. It speaks of much power. It means strength, might. It even can be used as supernatural strength. Peter's referring to God's power with double emphasis, as if to say his deity power or his God power. His power of God power, if you will. This is his theological power. Think of it as his personal heavenly power, power that only God has. It's not a human power. It's not a superhuman power. It's not the power of a hundred men, a million men. It is the power of God greater than what you or I could ever possibly fathom or measure. Stephen Charnock has said, The power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever he pleases, whatsoever his infinite wisdom may direct, and whatsoever the infinite purity of his will may resolve. As holiness is the beauty of all God's attributes, so power is that which gives life and action to all the perfections of the divine nature." How vain would be the eternal counsels if power did not step in to execute them. Without power, his mercy would be but feeble pity, his promises an empty sound, his threatenings a mere scarecrow. God's power is like himself, infinite, eternal, incomprehensible. It can neither be checked, restrained, nor frustrated by the creature. End quote. This great power is expressed in God's original work of creation. This is the same power that was exhibited when there was no light, and on the first day of creation, God spoke it into existence, and he called it good. There was no liquid, and on the second day, God spoke water into existence and covered the earth with it. It's that power. It's the same power that Peter speaks of here. 
It's the same power when there was no vegetation, and on the third day, God caused the dry land to appear and plants and fruit-bearing trees to come forth from the earth, and God said it was good. It's the same power here that Peter speaks of, that when there were no other planets, and on the fourth day, God spoke the sun, moon, and stars into existence, and he said it was good. The power of which Peter speaks here is the same power that when there were no creatures in the water or in the air, and on the fifth day, God spoke swarms of living creatures and birds into existence, and he said it was good. The same power that when there was no man, and on the sixth day, God created Adam from the dust of the earth. There was no woman, and God created her from man's rib. There were no land animals, and God spoke them into existence. It's that power that Peter speaks of here, the power to make much from nothing. In fact, the power to make all things out of nothing. You know from our recent study in Psalm 139 that God is omnipotent, omnipotent, all-powerful. The psalmist says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. The power for godliness of which Peter speaks in this passage is that power to create a human being. In fact, the Bible says that God is power. Jesus said it that way in Mark 16, verse 62. But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. When we think of power, we ought to think of God as the ultimate power, really the standard of power a standard that no one could attain. In Ephesians 3, verse 20, we read, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. When we think about what God has accomplished, we often forget it the moment we start thinking about what we want him to accomplish. And in particular, when it comes to the matter of personal sanctification, we get into this rut thinking that somehow, I guess it's just going to be the way it is. There's this phrase that we have often said, and it's true. It's very likely that if you struggle with a particular sin, you may struggle with that particular sin the rest of your life. But that is no reason to think that you cannot gain mastery over it and experience victory on a daily basis. Why? Because the power of sanctification is the very power of God. It is the very power of God. You remember from last week in verse 1 where Peter referred to our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter refers to Jesus Christ as God and then as Savior. So Jesus is no less powerful than the Father. We want to keep that straight. We know from Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that Paul says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is personal, unique power, unlike the power of any other Entity. When we think of God's power, we really ought not to think of it in comparative terms. We ought to think of it in superlative terms. A comparative term would be God is much more powerful than we. We ought to be thinking is that God is ultimately powerful in contrast to our impotence. Whatever power we hold pales in comparison, and really there is no comparison. A.W. Pink said, well, may the saint trust such a God. He is worthy of implicit confidence. Nothing is too hard for him. If God were stinted in might and had a limit to his strength, we might well despair. 
But seeing that he is clothed with omnipotence, no prayer is too hard for him to answer, no need too great for him to supply, no passion too strong for him to subdue, no temptation too powerful for him to deliver from, no misery too deep for him to relieve, end quote. And according to Peter, here in our text, what has this power of God supplied? Specifically, all things that pertain to life and godliness. You should be ready to jump out of your seat at this point. You should be so excited. You don't have to do jumping jacks if you don't want to. But you should be thrilled that the hope for your sanctification, your personal spiritual growth, those things that so frustrate you, and discourage you about you, much less about others. There's hope. When we talk about hope, you know this, we don't really mean hope, we mean we'll see. But biblically, when we talk about hope, this is an absolute certainty if we think rightly and respond rightly to the text of Scripture. You don't really have to ask what he means by all things because he qualifies it very specifically when he says all things that pertain to life and godliness. So obviously he's not talking about all things throughout the history of the world. He's talking about all things pertaining to life and godliness. Now, last week I said to you, I'm not fond of the phrase, all truth is God's truth. The wonderful commentator, Frank Gablin means, who I think much of but wholeheartedly disagree on this topic, is the idea that science is the equivalent of God's word. If we don't draw the line strictly at God's truth, God's word, then where do we draw the line? Are we going to say that math, then, is truth in the same way that the word is truth? What about, then, English? English changes. It has changed. All languages change. What about, then, experience? You see the problem? So when we talk about truth, we're talking exclusively about God's truth. And Jesus himself said, Father, sanctify them with truth, your word is truth. But here Peter speaks specifically of that which will bring about life and that which will bring about godliness and specifically all that's necessary for both. First you need to talk about what he means by life. This is the Greek term zoane, a derivative of zoe. He's talking about eternal life here. Kenneth Wiest said, this word speaks of life in the sense of one who is possessed of vitality and animation. It is used of the absolute fullness of life, both essential and ethical, which belongs to God. It is used to designate the life which God gives to the believing sinner, a vital, animating, spiritual, ethical dynamic, which transforms his inner being and, as a result, his behavior, end quote. In John 20, verse 31, we see the familiar use of this term where John says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. As you know, Peter has said, we've been given all things that pertain to life. Specifically, John, just as Peter, is referring to eternal life. John in 1 John 3.14 uses the term by saying, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And then in 1 John 5 verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. How does one get life? Well, Peter has told us that we have all things that pertain to life. He's referring to the word of God. We have all that's necessary. It was given to us, and Peter speaks of this in past tense. Notice he doesn't say you will be given all things that pertain to life. You have been given all things that pertain to life. It's done. It's sealed. You have exactly enough. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 15 reads, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? The whole idea here is that the one who's sufficient for these things, the one who can teach these things, the one who can speak these things, is the one who is an aroma of Christ unto God because he has been given life. He has been given eternal life. 
In Ephesians 2, verse 4, Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. Another derivative of the term zoe. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So all that is necessary, all that pertains to life is given to us in the word. Paul speaks of it here for those and about those who have received it when they were dead. They were given life. They were brought from death to life. In John 6, verse 68, we read, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Same term. Where else would we go? You have exactly what we need. As you know later, and in our text this morning, Peter would say, we have all things. The power of God has provided all things that pertain to that life. Peter, having explained to the Jews that Gentiles can be redeemed in Acts eleven eighteen, says, when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. You see the pattern here. God has granted this life. And all that pertains to that life is given to us by the power of God and displayed in the word of God. What then is godliness if Peter says that God's power has granted to us all things related to life, but also all things related to godliness. We certainly need to know what this term means. Well, it means religion, piety, devoutness, or devotion. More literally, it is the confluence of two words, one meaning well and the other meaning worship. So really, godliness in a technical Greek sense means well-worship. Kenneth Wiest says, so that the radical idea is worship rightly directed. Well, worship. That's the essence of the term fundamentally. Practically, it's to be subject to the character of God, to intentionally, you know, volitionally be subject, to subject oneself to the character of God. It's to think rightly about God and to live accordingly. That's what godliness is. It's to know him and love him. It is to be being conformed to his image. That's what godliness is. John MacArthur says about this term that it encompasses both true reverence in worship and its companion, active obedience. Two things going hand in hand. John MacArthur goes on to say, Saints should never question God's sufficiency because his grace that is so powerful to save is equally powerful to sustain them and empower them to righteous conduct. So this is not simply a matter of some sort of perfunctory stated change, but it's a change that reaches down into the heart and finds its way into the conduct. That's what godliness is. In Romans 8, 29, Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so here we see this call taking place in such a way that a life change results. Godliness is not just a term or a label. It's a matter of the condition of one's heart as manifested in conduct. In Philippians 1.6, Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So one is not simply called to godliness in such a way that it might happen. It, it does happen. There's every reason for it to happen. So godliness is made possible by the ultimate and greatest source of power in all of history. In fact, this power infinitely outweighs any other source of power. You see, if you've been granted eternal life in Christ and by Christ, whatever source of power weighs you down, it is no match for the power of God. The power for godliness has no rival, no worthy opponent, no enemy that stands a chance in the battle for the godliness of the one who has been granted life in Christ. 
the power that flooded the entire earth has given you all things that pertain to that godliness. The power that parted the Red Sea in Exodus 14 is the power for your godliness. The power that brought down the walls of Jericho in Joshua 6 is the same power at your fingertips for godliness. The power that rescued Peter and freed him from prison in Acts 12 is the power that you have for godliness. The power that produced the earthquake that freed Paul and Silas in Acts 16 is the same power for your godliness. In Luke 6, 18 to 19, we read, And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out of him, and he healed them all. That power is yours for godliness. In Luke 8, 46, But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Do not forget that that power is your power for a godly life. The power that physically raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11 is yours for your sanctification. The power that resurrected the spiritually dead unto life is the same power that enables you to have a godly life. If that power can grant you eternal life, that power can grant you a godly life. Why then, you say, do I struggle so terribly with ungodliness? Why is my life, at least occasionally, if not regularly, so uncharacteristic of the person of God? It could only be for one of two reasons. Either you do not have life in Christ, you've not been granted life in Christ, or you are not on the pathway to godliness. We follow up point number one, the power for godliness, with point number two, the pathway to godliness. Continuing in verse 3, Peter says, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. You see how this works together. Peter has said, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We want to talk now about the pathway to godliness. Simply put, the pathway to godliness is the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And how are we called to his glory and excellence? What is the pathway? It's knowledge of him, which is the pathway to godliness. The pathway to godliness is for those whom God has called to his own glory and excellence. There is a call, and that call is to knowledge. J.I. Packer in Knowing God said, A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about him. Therein lies the potential problem in so many people's lives who struggle so repeatedly and so unsuccessfully with ungodliness. Let me read it again. A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about him. You understand the difference. Taste and see that the Lord is good, says the psalmist in Psalm 34, verse 8. To taste is, as we say, to try a mouthful of something with a view to appreciating its flavor. A dish may look good and be well recommended by the cook, but we do not know its real quality till we have tasted it, end quote. J.I. Packer also says, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. We have some idea, perhaps, what prayer is, but what is meditation? Well, 
may we ask, for meditation is a lost art today, and Christian people suffer grievously from their ignorance of the practice. Meditation is the activity of calling to mind and thinking over and dwelling on and applying to oneself the various things that one knows about the works and ways and purposes and promises of God. It is an activity of holy thought, consciously performed in the presence of God, under the eye of God, by the help of God, as a means of communion with God, end quote. We would do well to give careful attention to J.I. Packer's counsel to think about knowing of God rather than just knowing about him. For the preacher, often the temptation can be to tell people about God rather than himself to actually know God. But I suspect that the sermon that doesn't touch the heart of the preacher probably doesn't touch the heart of the listener. The preacher who has not been impacted by the truth of God himself, the character of God himself, very likely is not a legitimate mouthpiece that might be used of the Lord to have an impact upon the listener. John MacArthur has said, Humility in ministry is a result of an exalted view of Christ and Scripture. See, to know God well, to know of him in the Scripture, and to be so moved would only result in humility. But as you know, a theology that boosts man's thoughts of himself could not possibly result in humility, but does quite well at producing false humility. Tragically so. John Calvin said, Man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. Can you imagine a man with a low view of God somehow springing forth with a low view of self? Of course not. The man with a low view of God tends to nurture a high view of himself and vice versa. Jeremiah 9 23 says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Peter goes on here to use this phrase, him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So who are we talking about here? We're talking about him who called us to his own glory and excellence. What is this call? It is God's irresistible, effectual call. It goes hand in hand with having been made alive. We not only have been given all things pertaining to life, we have been given a call that brings us to godliness. Specifically, we are called unto God's glory and God's excellence. Let's start with this thought. The unbeliever in the unregenerate state has not been called or brought to God's glory and excellence. That should help us understand what it means to have been called to God's glory and excellence. There is a stark contrast. And in particular, the false convert shows himself on some occasions to appear to have a godliness and yet proves, according to Paul the Apostle, that he does not have power. Exactly how Paul says it. He has an appearance of godliness, but without power. That lack of power shows that his godliness is a facade. It's a show. His life is not a picture of God's glory, and his life is not a picture of God's excellence. The believer's life, on the other hand, is. The believer's life is not perfect. It's not flawless. But it is on an upward swing toward increasing godliness, increasing God-likeness. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. 
Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. You can see how this call, this calling upon brothers, upon Christians, results in a command to boast in the Lord. Now think of it. Think of it. The person who, according to Jeremiah 9, 23, boasts in knowing the Lord, who thinks that he initiated that knowledge, who thinks he brought himself to the Lord, what then does he boast in? He boasts in his actions. But if he can humble himself before the truth of Scripture and see that this is a call of God, an effectual, certain, irresistible call of God that awakens the dead unto life and ultimately unto godliness, he can and should, in fact, he is commanded to boast in the reality that he knows the Lord. Why? Because God did it. And he did not. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul the Apostle lays this out in somewhat of a parallel fashion to what the Apostle Peter is telling us, further bolstering our conviction over the reality that it is the call that leads ultimately to godliness. This is the pathway to godliness. God grants knowledge because he establishes an effective, irresistible call. In Joel 2, verse 32, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Who will call upon the name of the Lord? <laughs> the one whom the Lord calls. And therefore, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In 1 Peter 2, verse 9, Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, this is not the first time that Peter mentions this call. The call that's given to us is a call to engage in knowledge, knowledge that comes from the Word of God and only from the Word of God. But it is a call placed upon a particular people, a wholly chosen race, the people of God. In 1 Peter 2, 21, Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Why? How? And why and how for you and me? He, because he was called, you and I, because we are called. If we believe that we are called as displayed in a hunger for godliness, then we can and we certainly will pursue that godliness. That call has been placed upon our lives We've been commanded to seek knowledge, to seek the knowledge of God, to understand him, to know of him, to know him well. In 1 Peter 5, verse 10, Peter says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This call has a starting place and an ending place. 
The call placed upon your life and my life is to respond to the Lord, to engage in a knowledge of truth, to gain increasing knowledge about the character of God, that that would then result in a greater godliness in us and that one day we would be ultimately transformed into the glorified state in heaven. Back to chapter 1 in 1 Peter, verse 13, Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. See, this is the pathway to godliness. That pathway begins with a call. It continues with a faithful and obedient response to understand and know truth, to subject yourself to the truth about the character of God. You see, a person with a low view of God will have a low measure of sanctification. It's not possible to have a low view of God and to be an increasingly godly person, to have a Increasing sanctification, it means that your knowledge of God is going to grow in depth and height and in breadth. So as you see here, Peter has said, you shall be holy for I am holy, quoting the Lord. Why? Because God has called us unto that holiness. Well, point number three, the promise of godliness. We've looked at the power for godliness. We've certainly Establish the reality that there is substantial and sufficient power for your godly life. We've looked at the pathway to godliness. How does one get there? It's based on the call and through the knowledge of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now we want to look at the promise of godliness. Peter says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. You see, it is by or through his glory and excellence that he has granted precious and very great promises. But the idea here is that by or through his glory and his excellence or his virtue, he has granted precious and very great promises. So whatever promises Peter is talking about, they're rooted in God's glory. They're rooted in God's virtuous or excellent character. And what are the precious and very great promises? Well, I believe that we can carefully and honestly surmise that these promises are that which lead to eternal life. That's the point that Peter is making. In Acts 2, 23, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. You can count the Holy Spirit as one of the promises, you know, from the book of Ephesians. That the Holy Spirit seals your eternal life. Some have referred to the Holy Spirit as a down payment on what you would receive, and that's really a good way to think of it. He secures the reality of your eternal life, and he stays with you. The Holy Spirit is a promise from the Father and the Holy Spirit is with you, and he comforts you, and he counsels you, and he strengthens you, and he convicts you. You can also count the promise of repentance and salvation as a promise of God in Acts 2.39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. You can be certain that if God calls you unto himself... That is a promise to you that you are a child of God and you have, in fact, received eternal life and you one day will enjoy that eternal life and that eternal state in a flawless, glorified condition. In Romans 1, 1 to 4, Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul, in some sense, gives a, a pre-unfolding of the gospel 
and what it is. Why are we so particular about helping folks in our church have an accurate and honest understanding of what the gospel is? It is because this is how God saves people. And to get this wrong is to be uncertain that God has, in fact, called you. The promise of godliness, the promises that God provides that certainly result in godliness, begin with God's willingness to grant repentance and eternal life to those who ultimately will be made godly. And what is the source of that? It's the gospel. It's the obedient, law-fulfilling life of the God-man, Jesus Christ. It is his wrath-absorbing death that he died in order that he would atone for the sins of those who would receive him. It is also the power of the resurrection for victory over sin. You can not leave out the resurrection. Without the resurrection, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, specifically verse 19, you have no hope. It is the power of the resurrection not only to give you eternal life, but to give the substance of evidence of that eternal life in this life, which is a godly life. And you can be certain of that. You can be certain of the promise of godliness. Now, it's no secret in our culture, in our pseudo-Christian culture, that the promise of godliness is considered to be optional. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. I remember years ago, a guy telling me, you know, I've chosen Jesus as my Savior. I'm thinking about that Lord thing. But I'm not sure. I like the fact that I'm saved, but I really don't like the idea of him being my Lord. I didn't know much then, but I knew enough to tell him that that's not possible. You're not a Christian. If you're not interested in the Lordship of Christ, specifically if you're not interested in a life that reflects the character of God. That is to be a false convert at best, but certainly not to be a convert. Peter goes on in our text to say, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Through what? Through the promises. Through the promises of God, which are rooted in what? In his glory and in his excellence. So that through them, through the promises, you might become partakers of the divine nature. It is an absolute certainty that if God has called you, you have become a partaker of the divine nature. And that divine nature is ultimately the promise. So we can say for those who are showing an increasing hunger for godliness, an increasing hunger for gaining victory over sin, not just having an appearance of godliness, which Paul says is revelatory of a false convert, but actual godliness. Now, can you read that person's mind who has that appearance? No, of course not. Some people, of course, will pretend, and some will pretend better than others. But in due time, in due time, person will be known by his or her fruits. Peter says we are partakers. This is the same term from which we get the word fellowship. You know the term koinonia. Same word here. It means partner or fellow, as in fellowship, companion. And so by partaking in companionship with God, that's the idea, in partnership with God. No, he's not your co-pilot. We're not going there. But we are saying that he is, in fact, a companion with you in this new nature. Not of equal character. We're not saying that. But you have partaken of the nature of God. The way Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 is, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's been recreated. Born again. Paul says, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Do not let someone convince you that you have two natures. This is an age-old misconception from Romans 5. You have one nature. You have one nature. You have a new nature. You say, then what's my problem? Same as Paul's, and you see it in Romans 7. 
Paul says, it's not me. What's he referring to? It's not my what? My new nature. What is it? It's sin that dwells in me. He goes on to call that the flesh. And so we have, as you know, what we've called in the past a spiritual appendicitis. You're poisoned from within by sin. And you and I have a responsibility to attack it, to kill it, to gain victory over it. And you are promised the certainty of doing that. You can be guaranteed that you can and you will become a godly person if you will follow the pathway to godliness knowing of the promise of godliness. That a man-centered theology says, no, it's optional. How many of you have ever heard of the phrase carnal Christian? Anybody ever heard that pulled out of 1 Corinthians 3? It's a misconception of what Paul's talking about. There is no such thing as a carnal Christian unless you're talking about the reality that all Christians still struggle with the flesh. But a carnal Christian, the idea that a person is saved but shows no interest in godliness, he has no godliness, is absolutely foreign to the scripture. You still will struggle with the flesh. And that's what Paul's addressing there. Warren Wiersbe has said, the Christian has been born into God's family and has God's nature within. You see why the new birth caused, as Peter says, by God and by God alone is crucial for the new nature? Wiersbe goes on to say, people who try to, listen, this is so helpful, listen to this. People who try to live, and he says, in quotes, like Christ on the outside but lack this divine nature on the inside, are deceived and defeated. Some of you and I, just not too many years ago, remember that deception and that defeat, and we remember our eyes being open and saying, wow, praise God for him using some faithful messenger who patiently and repeatedly and kept on and kept on supplying truth. And eventually it wore me down. The Spirit of God used it to reveal to me that the problem was I was dead. And therefore deceived. And therefore defeated. Oh, don't, don't be defeated today. Don't be Defeated while clinging to a small God. This is such a drastic difference from the man-made God, which helps no one, but only frustrates him. The new nature is the ground floor of a Christian's godliness. The new nature is the starting gate. In 2 Corinthians 3, 18, Paul says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. See that? That transformation that's obviously taking place. Paul declares that it is. It's as if your conformity, in fact, it's what he's saying, your conformity to Jesus Christ is happening in stages increasingly conformed, increasingly conformed. The rough edges are shaved off. If you were to hold a silhouette of yourself up and to hold a silhouette of Christ up, what would be happening is that in the beginning, you don't look much like him. The silhouettes don't match much at all. But in time, the silhouettes are looking more and more and more alike. But if there is no regeneration... If there's no new nature, if there was only some fleshly decision to follow this guy who is a great guy, that conformity will not really happen. It could appear to happen on the outside with a lot of good things, but it's not really happening. Well, we've looked at the power for godliness. It's there. It's yours. You can be a godly person. Please don't let some difficult experience that you had with a believer or an unbeliever or a false convert or whatever, you know, that ruined your life temporarily, please don't let that diminish the reality that you have the full power of God to grow in godliness. You have power for godliness. Second, there is a pathway to godliness. You must be on that pathway you must acknowledge that that pathway began with God putting you on that pathway. God calling you, 
with an irresistible call, placing you on the pathway to godliness. But you must respond in faithfulness and examine the truth of the character of God. You must be increasingly willing to be scathed and even offended by the truth of the character of God if you desire to grow in godliness. Third, we've looked at the promise of godliness, the absolute certainty of it for those who have been called and are on that pathway. Fourth, the proof of godliness. The proof of godliness. I want to divert just momentarily to the Apostle John, who has told us it's obvious who's a child of God and who is a child of the devil. And he explains that the child of God loves the brethren. He doesn't pretend to love the brethren. He doesn't tolerate the brethren. He loves the brethren, and he loves righteousness. So many false converts in our culture who've perhaps never heard these truths spoken in a gracious way. Perhaps no one has ever sat down and said this is really reality. Practical question momentarily. What are you doing in your family groups to provide opportunity for unbelievers in your neighborhood to be exposed to truth? Are you praying about that? Are you pleading with God for opportunities to minister to your neighbors, your coworkers, that they would see in you the proof of godliness. Not that you would engage in some sort of, you know, evangelistic program, you know, and go out and melt people down with a bullhorn or something, but that you would share truth with them when God provides the opportunity. And maybe you'd even be looking for opportunities. Peter says here, so clear, so helpful. I love this terminology. It doesn't take much to understand it. Having escaped, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. See that? There's been an escape. There's been a liberation, a revolution. This corruption is destruction. Really, it's decay. It's moral corruption. It's ruin. It's depravity. It is the natural-born state of man. The godly person has been liberated from the world's sin prison. And there is proof in his life of godliness. Paul would say that you are no longer a slave to sin. He would say in Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You say, Todd, isn't he talking about legalism? Yes, and legalism is sin. And it's not only imprisoning to the people that you strap with it, it's imprisoning to you. Paul says you've been freed from that. Romans 6 verse 4 says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, that's proof. That's proof. Newness of life. Not just a different life, but a new life. A life based on a rebirth. A pathway that began with a call. It pursues the character of God. Verse 5 in Romans 6 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. What was that? Well, it was miraculous. A resurrection like his? Yeah, he was dead. And he was made alive. And Paul says, if you were dead and made alive, then you have a resurrection like his. That's what he's talking about. But if, on the other hand, you had just enough life to choose Jesus, you didn't know you were dead. And therefore, you're not alive. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And then this, and this is my point. He says, in these, you too once walked when you were living in them. You not only did them, they were your life. Saying two different things. You engaged in them, but they were your character. It's who you were. And Paul says, past tense. Not you anymore. Why? Because you've escaped the corruption of this world and you walk in godliness and there is proof of godliness in your life. The church attests to it. Not just people who are afraid of you will say, yeah, he walks with the Lord, but all people who know you would say that. This is not so, though, of those in 2 Peter 2, beginning with verse 20, where Peter says, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now think about this. Stop for a moment. Think about what he's saying here. He's just said that those who are in Christ have escaped. What have they escaped? They've escaped the worldly corruption. And if you weren't paying close attention, you might initially think he's saying the same thing here. They've escaped the defilements of the world through, sounds good, doesn't it? Through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Stop. Many people, maybe most people, would say, that's a Christian. Peter's saying it's a false convert. It's a false convert. He's escaped the defilements. He's cleaned himself up. He's got a better life. He even goes to church. He hangs out with mostly the right people, mostly not the wrong people. He's escaped the defilements of the world. And guess what? It came as a result of being made aware, having been given knowledge of God, Jesus Christ. But he says they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Friends, we're not talking necessarily or only about the person who is proven in an obvious fashion before the whole world to have been entangled in the defilements of the world, but the person who privately struggles with defilement and he's too proud to tell anybody about it. That's who Peter is talking about. Read it again. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandments delivered to them. And then this very picturesque illustration, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog, a term frequently used in scripture for one who's defiled, the dog returns to his own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Now, I've never seen a sow wash itself. I've never heard of a sow washing itself. But the whole point is, if a sow can do that, and that's exactly the idea, isn't it? A sow who would seemingly have no interest in washing itself actually does. But I like the mud. And he goes back to it. You see, they've been washed on the outside, but remain dead on the inside. Matthew 23, 27, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like the whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This passage I've read to you many times in, on many occasions from 2 Timothy 3, uh, beginning with verse 1. Paul says to Timothy, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, 
ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. See, the trouble with reading a passage like this is that an unbeliever could be listening and saying, yeah, oh, that's me. Oh, wait a minute, that one's not me, so I guess he's not talking about me. But no, no, no. If any one of these elements that Paul has listed is true of a man, Paul's point is that he is always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Constantly subjecting himself to information with the wrong attitude, with the wrong motive, and never arriving at the reality of the truth. And then Paul gives an example. He says, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. They will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Why, friends, do we at the Anchor Bible Church put such a high price on truth? Because, to quote Charles Spurgeon, to be discerning is not to know right from wrong. It's to know right from almost right. And to get truth almost right is to be a good Mormon. It's to be a good Catholic. And it's to spend eternity in hell and to be surprised by it because you thought you did enough good deeds. And yet, so many are deceived. Paul says, knowledge puffs up. Paul's talking, though, about knowledge about meat sacrificed to idols and that there will be those who in a condescending and very immature way will look down on other believers and refuse to defer to them and that knowledge that they have well it's just meat what's the big deal it puffs them up and Paul says we ought to defer one to another when it comes to things like that so don't think that Paul and Peter are disagreeing with regard to knowledge it is knowledge that is the pathway to godliness, and it is crucial that we understand the knowledge of God. Thomas Watson said, if you have been a prodigal and spent all on your lusts, flee to God by repentance. He will embrace you with the arms of mercy and seal your pardon with a kiss. The deepest sin is not so broad that Christ's blood cannot cover it. I want to give you four quick implications, each one rooted in one of the main four points that I've given to you, and we'll wrap up with this. First, I want to ask you to trust in his power for your godliness. That's not a surprise. We've established that God's power is not only sufficient, but certainly supplies your godliness. Trust in God's power for your godliness. Second, know him increasingly, glorify him, and be godly in all you do. Stop and think and ask the question, will this glorify God? Will this honor Christ? Is this good for the common good of the body? Will this be helpful for my family? And on and on. So again, number two, know him increasingly. Glorify him and be godly in all you do. Number three, believe his promise of your godliness. Believe Peter when he says, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Believe that God, in fact, has promised godliness to you, and you won't be, if you are in Christ, 
a flailing, immature believer for the remainder of your days, frustrated, defeated, and deceived. But believe his promise of your godliness. And number four, thank God that you've escaped the corruption of the world and keep running. Thank God. Don't remind God of what you accomplished. That's foolhardy. Thank God that you've escaped the corruption of the world and keep running. And so what I mean by this is be encouraged. You're sitting here this morning. You've been listening to me talk for over an hour. And you're still listening and you're still writing. And you're still hoping to be strengthened and encouraged and to be sanctified and to grow in godliness. Thank God that he placed that hunger in your heart. He established something in you that you weren't seeking after and couldn't achieve. Praise God. Sing to him. Lift your voice to him and cry out to him with gratitude that he is accomplishing godliness in you. He has called you onto that pathway and you have a hunger to be on that pathway. You desire a deeper knowledge and a more accurate knowledge of the person of God. Thank him for that and keep running. Persevere. Cling to those that you know who are in that struggle with you. Subject yourself to someone, if you haven't already, who has this same deep desire who will carry you when you think you can't keep running. There are plenty of people in our little church who love you deeply and want to see you grow in godliness, which is what God has promised you. If you'll remain on the path, subject yourself to his power, believe in his promise, he'll show that proof in you. Father, we rejoice because you've been so good to us. Father, I thank you for a a church that is blessed with godly people, people who by no means are flawless, but godliness is something that can be attained. Godliness is a certainty for the maturing believer. Lord, we see that. We see that, and we long for that, and we pray that you'd help us to be faithful, to involve ourselves in the practices that will certainly lead to it by your promise. Help us to rightly interpret Scripture. Help us to embrace the implications of Scripture. And I I trust that as we go into our family group times this week, that each person will have come ready, excited, having grappled with the truths of 2 Peter 1, 1 through 4, that we would enjoy that time together, interacting, resting in the great power of God, hoping for the proof of godliness to be revealed in our lives for your glory and for the salvation of the lost. We ask this in Jesus' name.